Okay, just turning into Psalm 119, we're going to be reading two different sections. Uh, the first part is verses 33 through 40, and then we're going to jump down to verses 129 through 136. So, we're starting verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. And then if you'll jump down to verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light, it imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as it is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because the people do not keep your law. Maybe may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in prayer, and we're going to dive right in. Father in heaven, we are grateful and we thank you uh, for writing to us and revealing to us your word. Father, I pray this morning that you'd grant me favor to teach your word as you have taught us here in this psalm. And I pray for those who hear your word that they would feel the tone and tenor of the text, and that in turn they would, by the power of your spirit, be motivated to do this word. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us, that you would move us from the heart, and that you would grant us the joy that comes as we hold fast your word, your holy word, your holy word that calls us to holy living. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. As we read and pray through Psalm 119, we keep company with one who delighted in his Bible. Bible delight is the heartbeat of this psalm, says Christopher Ashe in his book, Bible Delight. I love the title, Bible Delight. And in the opening pages of his book, he speaks of his own love for the psalms and his approach to teaching the psalms. And in particular, as he teaches Psalm 119, he views himself as a music teacher. And he says, my task as music teacher is didactic. In other words, it has a teaching purpose to it. It's affectional. It's it's intended to tune in the listener to the feeling of what's being spoken of here in the text. And it's volitional. It's moving the will to join in. He says, I need to instruct so that we understand the lyrics I need to teach the tune metaphorically so that we feel it as we sing. We are moved and touched by it as well as instructed by it. I need to motivate so that not only can we sing it, but we want to sing it from the heart. We want to. And you know, I was thinking about this and I was reminded in my own life years ago, I was reminded of the days in elementary school, my days in high school. And those two periods of my life came together because it was during those periods of my life where I was taking part in a choir. And it happened to be that the same person who taught me music at the elementary level is the same person who taught me music at the high school level. I had the same teacher. And I'm grateful that I did. You see, I I can remember when we learn a new song, and I, I remember her playing through that song on the piano and giving us an idea of how the song flowed. I also remember being taught the big idea behind the song. Sometimes she emphasized certain lyrics in the song. At other times she shared significant information about the songwriter, helping us to see how or why behind the song itself. And I can resonate with, with Christopher Ashe in the beginning of his book, 
likening the teaching of Psalm 119 with one who teaches music. You see, I had an excellent music teacher who was extremely skilled with her voice and very skilled on the piano. And she was an encourager. She was a motivator. She was someone who always called out the best in her students. She never settled for mediocrity. And I love that about her. She always was raising up and bringing us up to another level as a choir. And with her as our teacher, we wanted to sing our song. We knew the lyrics. And we had a feel for the song. But after a while, we truly had a motivation to sing this song. That motivation to sing expressed itself. You see, it was a joy to be a part of a group that wanted to be there. It was a joy to be a part of a group that wanted to sing. A group that was motivated by a song. And I was thinking about that and thinking about the joy that I believe it's intended to be. And I think about the church in which the same thing could be so about God's church. There is a group of people who want to be here. A group of people that want to sing. A group of people that want to worship the Lord. A group that's motivated and compelled by the love of Christ. A group that collectively takes joy in opening the word and learning from God himself. As you study the psalm today, in particular we'll be looking at 129 through 136. I want you to ask three questions. And I believe these three questions might be questions a music teacher would perhaps be inclined to ask. But they seem to be appropriate to the Psalms as a whole and Psalm 119 in particular. Do you understand it? Do you understand what the text says? Can you feel it? Can you feel what the text is saying? And then are you going to be willing to sing this song? Are you going to be able to join in with the psalmist here? He's not writing this so that you can, from a distance, go, wow, that's pretty neat. He's writing that you yourself would get involved with it, that you would join him in the anthem. And my hope this morning is that you will understand the text and what it says. My hope is that the text evokes a certain feeling in you as you hear the psalmist testifying of his love for God and God's word. And my prayer is that you will be motivated to sing the psalmist's song, that it won't simply be an acknowledgement of his song, but that you will be moved to join in his song from the heart. Look at verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Literally, it says, wonderful are thy testimonies. Wonderful, that's the first word, wonderful are thy testimonies. Elsewhere in the scripture, we see this word wonderful. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, talking about the wonderful counselor, right? In that context of the mighty God, Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor. Isaiah 25, verse 1, says, it's a praise to God. It says, for you have done wonderful things. Psalm 77, 11 The psalmist remembers your wonders of old. A few verses later in that same psalm, he says, you are a God who does wonders. And Psalm 78, verse 12, uses the word marvelous. Psalm 78, 12 says, marvelous things he did in the sight of the fathers in the land of Egypt. Marvelous things, wonderful things. He's truly, church, a God of wonders. He's holy in all that he does. And the scriptures testify to his wonderful name and his wonderful works. And yet, we are confronted with a statement right here at the beginning of the passage. A statement that reflects the feeling and heartbeat of whom? The psalmist. This is the way he feels about God's testimonies. Are God's testimonies wonderful to you? Are they wonderful to you as you sit here this morning? I would imagine that a quick survey would reveal a favorable response to that question. Here in this building, the loudest voice may be a resounding, yes, I believe God's testimonies are wonderful. If we go outside these walls, perhaps the response is not as unanimous. 
Maybe there's some agreement mixed with some disagreement. Could be some inclined to substitute wonderful with restrictive. Maybe his testimonies are received not as wonderful, but as joy robbers. God's testimonies have taken away all my joy. God's testimonies are so restrictive. His rules keep me from having all the fun I want to have. If we center the question back inside the walls of the building for a moment. It's one thing to nod our head and and agree and say yes up here to the question. Do you believe that his testimonies are wonderful? There might very well be common agreement on that. But does the way that you feel about his testimonies stir you toward action? Does it do anything to stir you forward in action? Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. There are three times the word keep is in this text. 29, 129, 134, and 136. Every time that it's used, you can just put in the margin, obey. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul obeys them. Obeys them. You see, because they're deemed wonderful in his life, he obeys them. Not content to just understand his testimonies and go, oh, yeah, I get it, yeah. He feels a certain way toward God's word and it compels him to obey. And so here you are, you sit here this morning and you're immediately confronted with a question. Am I actively obeying his testimonies because I love them? Because I think that they're wonderful? You see, God has given to his people a wide spectrum, a wide spectrum of emotions. He's made us to feel sadness, to feel joy, to feel disappointment, to feel anger. God's given us these feelings. And I'm not advocating here this morning some psychology fluff. That's not what I'm talking about, approach to handling the text. And I think that some of us, when we hear these trigger words, we cringe or we put up red flags in our minds. And we ask ourselves, what's all this talk about feelings? Uh Uh-oh, I'm getting a little nervous. He's talking about feelings. Where's he going with this? Feelings are the very thing that are expressed in the scope of the Psalms, friends. If you read Psalm 1 through Psalm 150, you see all kinds of feelings being put forth. In fact, I would say it's hard to preach, if not impossible, to preach the Psalms and leave out feelings... Just to appease what might be deemed a touchy-feely, soft, emotionally focused message for the listener. You see, while there is a real concern about taking the feelings and emphasizing that as the main idea, I believe that we've done a disservice to the Psalms when we hide the feelings and just preach the facts. Sort of like that reporter who's told to just keep to the facts. A preacher who just stands and just preaches the facts and then says, go do it. Well, we're missing something. There's because we are emotional beings, aren't we? We are emotional beings. We have feelings. You woke up this morning and I would imagine when you woke up, you had certain feelings when you rolled out of your bed this morning. Some of you were pretty groggy. Some of you were pretty sleepy. Some of you took you a while to get going. Maybe you got a cup of coffee in you and all of a sudden you started your day. For some of you, you think about the points in time of your day, certain emotional triggers, things that you do, things that others might do to you that trigger emotion. We are emotional beings. I don't believe for a moment that the psalmist views God's testimonies as wonderful, absent of some deeply held emotion attached to his belief. The wonder that he has for God's word, it drives him to run in God's way. Is that true of you, friends? The wonder that you have for God and his word, does that drive you and motivate you to run in the course of his commandments? The psalmist keeps and obeys God's testimonies. But what is it that leads to his obedience? How does he get there? Look at the text. Look at verse 130. He says, the entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. That word entrance is is a wonderful word in and of itself to look at. And it has in mind, the Hebrew word has in mind the idea of of a door or a revelation or an opening that sheds light. 
And, you know, I was thinking about this and thinking about how our days, how many have noticed when you wake up in the morning that daylight is shrinking fast? Have you noticed that? You wake up and it's still dark outside. It's still dark out. How many of you like to get up when it's still dark out? I didn't think there's not very many of you. There's a couple of you that are just odd, odd, (laughs) that like it. But most of us, I would gather, it's dark. It's like, man, dark, dark is equivalent to I need to stay under the covers. Huh? Does that apply to anybody? That's, see, I think that's the majority of us. But what we see is that this idea of darkness and light, I was, I was thinking about this uh, the other day, and I, I was in bed. I remember just outside of our room, we have a lamp out in the hallway. Well, when our door is closed, it's dark, and I love it. But that slightest opening of the door, you know what it does? It brings in what? What's it bring in? Light. It brings in light. And it reminded me of this word, the entrance. The entrance of your word brings light. It opens the way for light. How often, friends, have you been in God's word and received a word from the Lord? The revelation of his word brings light where there was once darkness, brings Knowledge where there was once ignorance you didn't know. And God in his word entered in as you opened that word. It's a joy to be there, isn't it? You see, the word itself has its origins in the Bedouin people of God. These people who roamed the face of the earth. These people who roamed with their tents in the days of the tabernacle. Remember that? And they're traveling people. And these tents were customary. And you know these tents had openings. They had flaps. And and the opening of the tent brought in light. And God's words served as light coming into his tent. The psalmist awakening him. Giving him understanding. Sharing with him. Showing him this idea of obedience. This obedience which flows from a wonder over the God that he serves. You see, the entrance of God's words bring light. In fact, if we go just a few verses backward in the Psalm 119, we see that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay? Your word, he says, is a light to my path. And the entrance of your words gives light. You know, I was drawn in this thinking about the entrance of his words. Turn to Luke's gospel. At the end of Luke's gospel, this is a wonderful uh, passage to kind of look in the New Testament and be able to see this idea expressed here. Jesus is on the road with those two folks on the road to Emmaus. Remember that? And he's joining them. And they just haven't got the idea that Jesus uh, was raised. He's been raised. And verse 27 of chapter 24, it says, Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A few verses later, in verse 31, it says that then their eyes, and this is right after he broke bread with them. Right after he broke bread with them, it says in verse 31, Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. They realized that this was Jesus. They knew him. And what happened after they realized that? He vanished. He was gone. And then they start talking to one another and they said, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Fast forward a few more verses down to 44. He appears to them and he tells them that these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. And verse 45 says, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You see, Jesus taught them the scriptures concerning himself. Their eyes were opened and they knew him. They had hearts that were burning within them while he spoke with them. Friends, when we are reading, when we have his word open, when we have ears to hear, all of these things that we just read in Luke 24... The entrance of your word gives light. He opened their understanding. God does this. I want you to understand this. He opens your eyes to be able to see this word. He opens your mind to be able to understand this word. He opens your understanding to be able to get what this says. He does that. And because he does that, we ought to treasure his testimonies. We too ought to think they are wonderful. That's where we ought to be. And that's where the psalmist is. That's where he wants us to join with him. He wants us also to be on that same page. To say with all of our heart, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul shall keep them. Has the word of God broken through into your heart in such a way as to bring light 
in understanding? Have you been taught by God to know who Jesus is from the scriptures? Has he opened your eyes? Has your heart ever burned within you, leading you to faith in the Son of God? Friends, that's how it happens. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Has your life exhibited the light of understanding? And does your life show forth evidence of God's penetrating light having its way in you? That question we ask up front, do I understand it? See, we understand this word only as God, through his Holy Spirit, grants understanding. The entrance of his words gives light and understanding. Look what the psalmist does upon being the gracious recipient of this light and understanding. Look at verse 131. He says, I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. And boy, I couldn't help but think as I was reading this verse of, of Psalm 42. As the deer pants, right? As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Do you feel that? My soul thirsts for God. Someone who's thirsty. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. Even when it's dark outside, I'm going to seek you. I'm going to get up. I'm going to seek you. And my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And the psalmist may have been writing that in the wilderness. But I believe the psalmist's words there are appropriate even in the land in which we live. It's a barren land. We live among a people who seem to be dry as a bone when it comes to the word of God. There's a famine in the land, as one of the prophets said, with regard to the word of God. The picture of Psalm 119, 131, is one of longing after God's commandments in such a way that we find ourselves out of breath. You ever been out of breath? You ever been out of breath? Some of you here run, right? You're out of breath. You run for a distance and you're running. You're running after something. There's a prize. There's a finish line. There's a goal. You want to get through the finish line. But we have another race, much more significant. It's a race to run for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're called to press on. And we're called to run this race to exhaust ourselves on his behalf, having been pursuing his commandments with all of our might. And as we think about that, that Psalm, verse 130, 131, opening my mouth and panting, longing for your commandments, does that picture describe you? Do you understand that the picture provided here is intended to instruct you? Do you understand that this is the path of one following the Lord, running his course? Do you get the feel of what this kind of life entails? Not a casual, comfortable stroll, but an all-out pursuit of God's ways. All out. A longing for God's commandments. A declaration that his testimonies are wonderful. It manifests itself in what we might call, this is not a new word, a relationship. A relationship in the course of pursuing the Lord. The psalmist is carrying on constant conversation, recurring prayer and petition, understanding his great need to stay the course. And so what we have now are seven petitions from verses 132 through verse 135. There are seven petitions. And the first two are found in verse 132. Look upon me and be merciful to me. They're coupled together. Look upon me. The idea there is turn to me. It implies that there's a look that has been averted from him for some time. And he's calling God to look to him, to turn to him. And to be merciful to him has in mind to show me favor. Grant me favor, God, as is your custom toward those who love your name. Now, the psalmist is petitioning. This is so important and helpful for us. The psalmist is petitioning a covenant God who keeps his word and remains faithful in all things. Psalm 105 verse 8 says that he, God, remembers his covenant forever. How long does he remember it? Forever. He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham. Psalm 106 verse 45 says, And for their sake, 
Israel, his people, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. In fact, church, if you take just a moment and you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, I want you to see something really important here. Because the words that are used in Psalm 119, the words that are used there are words that many of them are used right here in Deuteronomy. You can read through the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, chapter 6, verses 1. This is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments. Do those words sound familiar, by the way? Commandment, statutes, judgments. Which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments. Skip down to verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he's commanded you. You see, these are covenant-keeping words. Psalm 119 is doing nothing more than expressing covenant-keeping words of our covenant-keeping God. And here in verse 132, the petition is that God would turn to him, that God would show him favor as your custom is. His custom is that way to those who love him. There's a relationship. He's called his people. He's chosen his people. It's his custom to keep loving the ones that he has chosen as his people. Do you see this? It's so important for us to understand. This relationship. In petitions 3 and 4. Petitions 3 and 4 are found in 133. Direct my steps. By your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Literally, it says, my steps establish by thy sayings. Make firm is is an understanding, is an idea there. Direct my steps, make firm. Make firm my steps by your word. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, the prophet says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. It's not in him. That's not in him. In fact, the proverb writer has some things to say about that as well. Chapter 20, verse 24, he says, A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? His steps are of the Lord. Proverbs 16, 9 says that a man's heart plans his way, but who directs his steps? The Lord. The Lord directs his steps. And that familiar passage in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with what? All of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And what's he going to do? It's the promise. He shall direct your paths, your steps. It's as though the psalmist is saying, God, orchestrate my steps at the sound of your voice. Are you petitioning God to order and establish, to make firm your steps by way of his word? Couple that petition with what follows in 133. And let no iniquity have dominion over me. I think three and four go together. Let no iniquity have dominion over me. If God establishes and makes his steps firm and secure in my life, then what that's going to amount to then for the psalmist, he's not going to be caged into these sinful, ongoing patterns of walking contrary to God's word. You see, dominion has in mind this idea of rule or sway or power. So instead of sin having dominion, the desire of the psalmist is that God's word would hold sway, directing down a path that pleases God. Do you you hear that tune? Do you hear the tune of the psalmist? Do you feel what he's getting at here? The whole idea of wanting and desiring God's word to have dominion in his life as opposed to sin. We go to the New Testament and we see what Paul writes about this very thing in Romans 6. He says, talking about Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And he says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's our union. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ took care of that. We're called to mortify the flesh, to take care of the sin, to be diligent, to guard ourselves. If we are in Christ and understand that death has no hold on him, and he did what he did at the cross, so that we should not now have to walk around with the ball and chain of sin. It has no mastery over us now. Because of Christ. 
because of the cross. Do you understand, friends, the gravity of sin having dominion over you? Psalm 19, verse 13 says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let them not have dominion over me. Is that your cry? Let sin have no dominion over me. Direct me instead. See that I'm walking firmly upon your word and what it has to say. You're a holy God. And this holy God that we serve has called each one of us to be holy. And sin is extended no welcome mat by a holy God. Listen to that. He's not, there's no welcome map put out for sin from a holy God. They don't go together. Direct my steps and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Petition number five, redeem me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Redeem has in mind the idea of ransoming or rescuing. And the desire is to keep or obey his precepts. Notice that in the text. Redeem me from the oppression of man. Why? That I may keep your precepts. That's why. You see, in 129, we we see that because his testimonies are wonderful, the psalmist's soul keeps them. But the petition here is for God to redeem him from the oppression of man that he might keep them. Look at verses 121 and 122. He says, do not leave me to my oppressors and do not let the proud oppose me. Is your petition for God to redeem you from man, is it rooted in simply desiring to forego the suffering? Is it a petition for God to remove you from your unfavorable situation? Or are you asking of God to rescue you from man's oppression that you might continue keeping his commandments, that you might continue obeying him? What's your motive behind the petition? See, the petitions in in verse 132 are made in light of a covenant-keeping God. The petitions in 133 are made in light of his desire to walk rightly on firm footing by his word and to walk unhindered by sin's mastery over him. And the petition in 134 is made with man in view. Oppression from man is the crux of the petition. But it's the crux so that he might be able to continue keeping God's testimonies. There are two more petitions that are found in 135. He says, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. And here I was drawn to Numbers chapter 6. At the end of Numbers in chapter 6, it says the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, this is what Aaron and his sons were to say to the children of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then it says at the end of that, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel... And I will bless them. You see, the face of God. What a privilege to catch the face of God. Fearing, falling down at your face. There was this awe factor. There was a reverence upon seeing God. This holy God. But the petition here in 135 is a desire for God's blessing. Make your face shine on your servant. It's a desire for God's blessing upon his life. He said in verse 132, look upon me and be merciful. He's asking for God to grant him favor. Here in 135, he's asking for God's blessing upon his life. And just as Moses' face lit up after meeting with God for 40 days, the psalmist entreats God to make his face shine upon him. And then we have that familiar phrase, which we've already come across on several occasions in Psalm 119. Teach me your statutes. He's crying out that God would teach him. As he walks in the way of blessing. The psalmist is petitioning God for blessing and favor 
His heart's desire is to learn from God, to walk as His Word directs. Unhindered, light shining along the way, understanding that's poured out. He's chasing after His ways. He's pursuing Him without weights of this life and the snares of sin. He understands what it is to follow God. And you reach, you, you get to this point and you read the text and you get the idea that he feels the tune of how a young man is to wholeheartedly run in the course of his commandments. You see the declaration in 129 about God's testimonies being wonderful. I believe the psalmist understands this God that he desires to walk with. He values supremely his word. He knows him. There's a relationship and he longs to remain in that path of blessing, which takes us all the way back to the first three verses of Psalm 119. The way of God's blessing. Blessed is the man who keeps his testimony. You see, as this stanza comes to a close, I believe we see a mixture of emotion and understanding coupled with a motivation to put into practice what God is teaching him. It says, rivers of water, verse 136, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. We see that in, in 119, verse 53, a similar idea. He says, indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. We see in the book of Lamentations, in the midst of the destruction of the people of Jerusalem, Lamentations 4, 48, the writer says, My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah, who was also around in that day, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. See, the psalmist here in 119, he concludes with a feeling of sorrow over those who do not keep or do not obey God's law. And the psalmist joins the company of Christ himself. Luke chapter 19 speaks of the Lord's triumphal entry. And as he's about to enter in, he stops and he pauses... And the text says that as he drew near, he saw the city. You remember what he did? He wept over that city. He drew near and he wept over the city. And he spoke of enemies that are going to come and level the city. Because you did not know the time of your visitation, he says. The fact that God's light and understanding is in the psalmists, as we read here... It's moving him. What's it moving him to do? It's moving him to walk with God as a man of God. It's it's moving him to run as in a pursuit after God's ways. All the way to the end. It's moving him to pray along the route. Recognizing his great need for divine assistance in the journey. It's moving him to tears. Recognizing that some, some do not keep God's law. And he feels it. It's not, listen, it's not a statistic to him. But he understands the depth of mercy and favor that's been shown toward him. And he sees his sin. But he's not going to be defined by it. He's not going to be held by it. He recognizes that he has a redeemer. That he has a rescuer. And his emotion now is channeled toward those who remain in their sin. Toward those who reside in disobedience. The heart is stirred. Not solely for himself. Do you see this? I want you to understand this from the text. He's not thinking only about himself, but he's thinking about others. Those who are, in fact, far from God, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul would say in Romans 1. In verses 118 through 120, listen to what we get as insight, additional insight in the psalmist. He says, you reject all those who stray from your statutes for their deceit is falsehood. You put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. In other words, he loves his testimonies because he recognizes that God is a just God. My flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. There's a reverence here. There's an awe factor the psalmist has in regard to God. And remember the premise Back in 129, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul 
keeps them. Here in 136, tears flow because men do not keep these testimonies that the psalmist deems to be wonderful. He deems these testimonies to be wonderful. And he's all around, he's looking and he's seeing that there are many men who do not hold these words to be wonderful. And, and it brings him to tears. And some of you might be sitting there and asking, well, why can't he just move on and tend to his own relationship with God? Why does he have to worry himself about what these other men are choosing to do or not to do with God's law? Here's what I believe. I believe that the psalmist has been infected with God and his word, which shows itself outwardly in love for others. He's been infected by God and his word in such a way that he can't just run this course all by himself in a box, in a tube, with no, no one else around him. He's just going to... No. Because of who God is and because of the impact of God's word in his life, he understands that it's more than himself. It's his heart's desire that all would say, your testimonies are wonderful. And so when he sees and he looks around and he sees that men are not obeying his law, it means something to him. It impacts him at a heart level. There's emotion. You better believe there's emotion there. I'm afraid we've lost some of that emotion as it pertains to people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today. We've become very good at just trying to run our own race. Have we forgotten? Need we be reminded? We are here, not for our own benefit. We are here as a witness, as an ambassador. We are here to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all things that the Lord has commanded. You see, this infection that he seems to have of God and his word, it manifests itself not solely in reciting biblical truth or intellectual reasoning, but instead it triggers the emotions and it acts on those feelings that God's planted in his heart. The psalmist is found weeping over what Jesus deemed and shared as a lost son. You remember the story, the picture in Luke 15? The picture of one lost, what did it do to Jesus? It moved Jesus. He wasn't here for himself. Jesus didn't come here for himself. And scripture says he came, in fact, to seek and save whom? The lost. He came. His perfect obedience to his father's will was accomplished at the cross. And in Luke 15, verse 20, while the son was still a long way off, I love this verse, it says, still a great way off, his father saw him. And his father had compassion his father had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I read 136. And perhaps you read 136 and you ask, why the tears? What's the point? What, what would God have us learn as this stanza comes to a close? I believe these are tears of indignation over some choosing to disobey God's laws, which to him are indeed wonderful. I believe these are tears of sadness over those who are going to be judged rightly by God under destruction. I believe these are also tears of sorrow over what disobedience means to God. God has placed us here for his glory and he's revealed himself to us through his word and through his spirit. And the sorrow comes when men forsake the goodness of God and profane his name. And the tune that's set forth here in 129 through 136 is one to follow. And it speaks of obedience to his wonderful word. My soul keeps them. Men do not keep them. The psalmist says, my soul keeps them. But he looks around and he sees that there are many who do not keep them. Do you understand the tune that's being submitted here? Can you feel what's being spoken and described? And will you sing it with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength? You know, I was thinking as, as we were looking at this stanza, I was drawn to Matthew's gospel. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last few verses, 24 through 27, Jesus depicts a wise man and a foolish man. And the wise man and the foolish man, they both hear God's word. Both of them do. They both hear God's word. They both are recipients of storms that come. 
The wise man builds on a rock. The foolish man builds on sand. When the storm comes, the wise man's house stands. When the storm comes, the foolish man's house falls. It crashes completely. And here's the difference. This is the difference maker. It ties into what we're talking about right here in Psalm 119. The reason is that the wise man not only heard the words, but he did the words. The foolish man heard the words. He heard the same words, but the foolish man chose not to do the words. See, understanding the Christian life, friends, is not an intellectual pursuit or quest to know all the Bible trivia questions. Understanding stirs the inside. It ought to then motivate us and move us into action for the Lord's sake. Understanding how wonderful His testimonies truly are will result in a heart's desire to join the song, to sing it out on your own. Having been convinced that God is good and that He does good and that He's a God in heaven. He's the living and true God. He's the everlasting God. You see, understanding the song engages the heart and the affections which propel right and godly motivation to own the song as your own. And so to arrive at a point where we too can say, God's testimonies are wonderful, but then follow that up with obeying them, not simply word speak. You see, the wise man, it is who builds on the rock and stands through the storms that come. And he does because he's a doer of the word and he's not a hearer only. The text says, deceiving himself. And you know, I was thinking of that song. This all ties into even songs we sang this morning. Thank you for the song selections, by the way. The song selections, appreciated that. Several in there. I love the third stanza of, and can it be? That grips me every time I sing it. Long my imprisoned, spirit light. Fast bound in sin, nature's night. Mine eye diffused, a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. Are you picturing this? I'm reading this. I'm singing this. And this wells up within me. This picture of I was once lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And we sing these kinds of songs. We sing in Christ alone. And we get to that third stanza. I think it's the third stanza where he says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. So what's, it, what's the picture? He's dead. He's in the ground. He's buried. He's already been crucified. He's buried. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. That gives me chills just thinking about it. You see, I believe that as we worship this great God, we worship him not just when the word gets preached on a Sunday. Friends, we've got to move and be moved by him and his word to recognize what it is he's done for us. When we sing these words, it ought to resonate within our soul. And it's my hope and prayer that for each one of us here, for each one of us here, that his words stir us. Stir us. You see, up from the graves he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Therefore, it need not have any dominion over me. It's lost its grip because of what Christ did. I can now direct my steps according to his word. And he's, he's redeemed me. He set me free to be able to do this. For I am his and he is mine. There's a relationship there. I serve a covenant-keeping God. I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. I'm bought with a price. I'm not my own. You see, God's testimonies are deemed wonderful because he's a wonderful God. And we serve a wonderful Savior who's granted to us a wonderful spirit. And listen, a wonderful God, a wonderful God deserves a wonderful witness. This morning, I pray you have understood the text. I pray you feel the text. You feel it deep within your, your, your soul. And I pray that it motivates you to sing the tune that the psalmist has submitted to us this morning as God's given it to him. I pray that the result is, I'm in, Lord. I'm in. 
your testimonies are wonderful. And I pray that that would grip each one of you. This day and forevermore. Amen. Your testimonies are wonderful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. This word that is truth. Father, I thank you that you have granted to us new life. Lord, there's supposed to be something different about us. We pick up and read your word. And the entrance of your words, it says, brings light. It gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I pray we would all be simple from the standpoint of having ears to hear what you have to say and be ready to go, be ready to walk in that way. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to all declare wholeheartedly that your testimonies are wonderful. That we would be able to declare each day as we worship you in the word, as we worship you in song, as we worship you throughout our days. We are praying without ceasing. We are thinking about you. We are thinking godly thoughts. Father, I pray that we would be reminded of how wonderful you are, that you are a good God, that you do good, that you have redeemed us, that you have set us free, that you have allowed us the opportunity, Lord, to be saved. And Father, I pray that that would make not only a difference in us, but as the psalmist declared, there would be something within us, Lord. These rivers, as he poetically describes, the rivers of water flowing down from his eyes. Lord, there is a heart of sorrow. There's tears, in fact, that come as he sees all around him these people who, in our terminology today, are lost. These people who do not keep or obey your words. Father, I pray it would be our heart's desire to share and to live before them and model before them what it is to walk and run in the course of your commandments. May there be such a a joy in us as we go throughout our days that, Lord, people see that and they praise you and that, Lord, you would turn them, you would open their eyes, that you would grant them understanding of your ways that they too might be able to declare that your testimonies are wonderful and it would be their desire to keep them all the way to the finish line. Thank you, Lord, for stirring us. And I pray that today and these days ahead in particular, Lord, as a result of your word, having landed on our ears and pray in our mind and our heart, Lord, that we would be stirred to take action. That we would now, having an understanding of the text, having a feel of the text, be thou moved to do this text, to join in the song of the psalmist. I pray it would be a song that we don't just hear and pass by, but a song that we join in today, tomorrow, and the remainder of our days here on earth. May we give you great joy in terms of how we live this life. Thank you, Father, for your good word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.